Well, do turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Samuel. You may be finding it difficult to find your way there. It's been so long since we looked at it. Two Sundays. We had two big hitters over the last two Sundays. If you're a visitor, uh, you can listen to them online. Uh, so it's kind of back to, back to porridge, uh, as they say. Um, <clears throat> but my, my torture is over because I, I hate not being in the pulpit, which is always been a challenge to my family who seem to want vacations from time to time and I find it quite hard relinquishing my job long enough to have them. So it, that was kind of enforced. I, I wasn't on vacation, but I had to sit and listen to other people, which is good for the soul, torture, uh, and a joy at the same time <laughs> for the reasons I hope you're able to unpick. Anyway, we're, go- we're looking at this uh, today and uh, let me remind you and tell you if you're a visitor that we've been looking at Second uh, Samuel, the story of David, and last time uh, we were looking at chapter 7. Mrs. Boyce gave uh, our senior high students this morning advice when they were giving their talk. She said, she said to them that they had to talk clearly and slowly and articulate well. I think she was actually talking to me as well. So I'm going, to t- I'm going to take her advice and try to slow down. So the first part of chapter 7 is about the covenant that God makes with David. And in particular, there are two words that stand out for me in that first part of Second Samuel. They're the words no and but. No and but. And I'll explain, I'll explain how they come up in the context here, but let me first of all begin by telling you a little story. Some of you will remember these two words figure often in conversations between parents and their children. No, but let me give you an illustration. There was a period, it was a very bad period in, in the life of the United Kingdom, influenced by certain kinds of music that were emerging and also certain kinds of clothing that went with the music. And uh, my cousin gave me the requisite uniform uh, about 10 years after that was actually in fashion, to be quite honest with you, but hey. Uh, and these, were, these involved very, now I don't want to stress anyone here, very tight pants and very short suit jackets, kind of down to your waist. And and normally, he gave me that, so I had the suit. Normally with the suit went a pair of shoes, which were, if I may just illustrate for a moment, (laughs) not like these. They went about four inches further on than these, and here they tapered until they became a dead point. We called them winkle picker shoes. uh, Carol Wynn tells me they were called cockro- cockroach killers here because you could get into the corner with them and kill the co- cockroach in the corner. They were, so, they were so cool in those days. You can't believe this. Some young people can't believe anything like that was cool, but they were cool and I wanted them. Anyway, I, so I, went, I remember going out with my mother and we went into a shoe shop and in that shoe shop I told her what I wanted. I said to her, Mom, I have never asked for anything in my life. Which, by the way, was absolutely true because I was a very good boy. I'd never (laughs) asked for anything in my life, but I wanted a pair of these winkle picker shoes. 
because I wanted to wear the suit that went with them. And you couldn't wear the suit without the shoes. They went together uh, along with the pencil tie and the very, very purple shirt. I had one of those. And the pencil tie, which had flowers on it, and which looked really, really cool and hip. And she said, no. <laughs> but I am going to buy you a pair of these sandals for you to wear to school. Now these sandals, let me tell you, girls wore these sandals. <laughs> and you're to wear the sandals over socks. Can you imagine? I mean, it's against all the rules of sartorial etiquette to wear sandals on top of socks. I've been in therapy ever since. Today's the first day. <laughs> Today's the first day I can actually tell people about this without breaking down and needing more, more sessions. No, seriously. No, but. So if any of you have had that experience where, you know, someone's turned you down and then given you an alternative that you didn't really like and being disappointed, then I want you to contrast that. Contrast that with the experience of David in this chapter here, where God says to him, no, but. And the background, of course, is this great covenant relationship that God has with David. David had the bright idea of building God a house, that is, a temple, a kind of earthly address, so that the God who fills the whole universe, the God who fills the heaven of heavens, can be found at this address. You can, you can write him, P.O. Box, Temple, Jerusalem, and you'd get him there. And uh, that was the place where God would touch down and meet with people. And David understood this, and David had this great ambition to build a great temple to God. God said, no. David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And he gives them a series of promises that God makes David a series of promises that we looked at. One that he's going to have a, a dynasty named after him is his descendants are going to rule over Judah from Jerusalem in the years to come. One of those descendants, one of his sons, was, would build a temple for God, and we know that that was going to be Solomon. And then he goes on to say, culminating this series, that the throne of David would last forever, forever and ever. For as long as eternity, the throne of David would last, and one of David's descendants would sit on that throne. That was the promise that God made to David. And we know, we know from the story as it unfolds, in fact we're going to discover this in the next few weeks, if I'm here often enough to tell you that David himself is going to be unworthy of these promises. Solomon, his successor who builds the temple, is unworthy of these promises. Kings come and they go and some do better than others. Some are commended for some stuff they do. Others are condemned for everything they do, but they're bad people mixed in with good as all of us are. They all fail at one level or another in their obedience to God, and yet God never once reneges on the promise he made to David. Sometimes God acts to punish these kings. Sometimes he disciplines them. Sometimes he makes life hard for them. Sometimes he has them deposed. But he never withdraws his promise to David. One of the great psalms that, that speaks about this is Psalm 
89, in which God says this, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish his offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. That's verses 3 to 4. If you glance down Psalm 89, you'll see that there are more promises. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. In my name his horn will be exalted. He will cry to me, you are my father and my God. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My covenant shall stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever. If his children forsake my law, I will punish their transgression, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love. I will not violate my covenant. I have sworn in my holiness. I will not lie to David. Are you getting the point from Psalm 89? God is serious in making this great promise to David. And as we saw last time, and I think it's possible to summarize the promise in two statements. God makes a father promise to David, and God makes a forever promise to David. He makes a father promise to David. He says this in verse 14 of this chapter, just before the part we read today. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We are so familiar in Christian circles with the language of father and son and son and father and calling God father that this goes right over our heads. We don't see the surprise element in this promise. But if we were able to put ourselves back into David's time, you would think this promise is almost an unthinkable promise. That God is too great. God is so great that he cannot have this kind of relationship with any human individual, that the intimacy involved in the father-son relationship is not the kind of relationship that we can posit of God. Oh yes, he had called himself in a metaphorical way the father of Israel. In Israel he had called his son. But up until David, there was no individual in the Bible who had been called the son of God until now, until David And now David is being told that his descendant will rule on God's throne in God's kingdom and will be known as the Son of God. Psalm 89, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And what David is being told here is this, that in the economy of God, in the economy of God by which God says to Adam and Eve outside of Eden, I'm going to intervene and one of your descendants will eventually crush the powers of darkness. The God who said to Abraham, one of your descendants, singling you out from all the rest of the people in the world, one of your descendants is going to be the means by which the whole earth is going to be blessed. The God who said through Jacob of Judah, from Judah shall the kingship be and and the scepter be going into the future. The God who called Israel and made them a nation. The God who had worked in their history has now narrowed his purposes down until he is able to say to this one man, from you David, from you David, 
all the promises I have been making to Adam and Eve, to Abraham and his family, to Israel. All of these promises are converging in your genetic line. In you, David. The royal house of David will define the throne of God in heaven. And no matter what happens from this point on in the future of Israel, no matter what happens in terms of what the descendants of David do, God keeps His promise. And whenever He's defending His promise, God says to His people, I'm going to do this. The treaty will stay in place despite their behavior. The treaty will stay in place. Why? Because or for the sake of my servant David. It's an amazing promise, isn't it? It's a father promise. And of course, the fact that one of David's offspring, and that David himself, was going to be called the Son of God, in some ways was going to shape the kind of king David and his successors were. They were to be priestly kings. In other words, because of their relationship with God, you see, they were able to stand before God on behalf of Israel. They were able to stand before God as representatives of His people. They were able to intercede with God. They were covenantal mediators. They stood between God on the one hand and God's people on the other. They were king priests like Melchizedek was, who's mentioned back in Genesis 14. It was a father promise. And secondly, it was a forever promise. Obviously, it went on after David's death. It went on. The throne was handed to Solomon and from Solomon to one of his children. And so it went on. The throne was handed from one to another. But that's more than. That, that, that isn't all that God is saying here. He says more than this. He says this promise will last forever. Over and over and over again. If you read this chapter, read it out loud. You'll find this word coming up like a machine gun. Rattle. Forever, 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 forever. God is saying, what I'm going to do is going to last as long as anything lasts. He's going to reign forever. And there's a sense in which, from a purely human point of view, that's what happened. One of David's offspring reigned in Jerusalem for over 400 years. The longest lasting political, royal family, dynasty that we know of in history. The remarkable achievement. But is that it? 450 years, is that what God meant by forever? And after that 450 years, that's it, it's interrupted. And the question is raised, how is it that God can fulfill this promise to do this forever for David? How can he do this forever for David? I mean, the only options are these. One, that there's always a Davidic king in Jerusalem reigning. And for 450 years, you can imagine that happening. And then it ended. The only other way that you could do it is, is if one of David's descendants himself lived forever and reigned on his throne. Forever. Well, about 800 years before Jesus, Isaiah the prophet 
gathers together these great promises and he says to Israel these words, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. No end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it from this time forth and forevermore. And when an angel from heaven disturbs the peace of a young girl in Nazareth and tells her that she is supernaturally pregnant by the power of God, he explains to her who her child is going to be and he says to her this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Mary's son was David's son. And Mary's son, who was David's son, was God's son. And God raised him from the dead, and God exalted him to the very highest place. And Peter announces on the day of Pentecost, he has sat down on his father David's throne, because David's throne is God's throne. We're told that, we're told that in First Chronicles chapter 29, when Solomon was crowned, we're told Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father, David. These were remarkable promises, weren't they? Remarkable promises of an everlasting king with an everlasting kingdom on an everlasting throne, ultimately fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. So here's the point of the story as we come to read this reading this morning. David says to God, I want to do something for you. And God says to David, no. I want to do something for you. I want you to leave today. That's you now I'm talking, not, not David. I want you to leave today enjoying the fact that the God who said no but to David says no but to you. And I'm going to explain how he does that. Because when you think about that for a moment, God denying us our little bit of effort. God giving us something. The Bible has a word for that, doesn't it? That, the Bible word for that is the word grace. Now, this, this section that we're looking at today, and I'm going to make a prophecy. The prophecy is that we're only going to get through the first point. Uh, and you can judge whether I'm a prophet later. There are three aspects to it in which we find David, one, rejoicing in God's grace, two, identifying with God's people, and three, standing on God's promise. 
Let's look at the first. David rejoices in God's grace. Look at verse 18. King David went in and sat before the Lord. That sitting is, is indicative of what he is now doing. God has said no to his activity. God has said no to him doing anything. And so he goes in and he sits before the Lord. He's in an inactive position. And he says to the Lord, Who am I? What is my house? What more can David say to you? You've left me speechless. David is overwhelmed. He is overwhelmed by what God has done. And if you read verses 18 to 22, you will almost feel like this. You will almost feel that it's fundamentally wrong to even to try and dissect a text like this. It's like asking a man or a woman who are in love to break down the details of what the elements of the affection that they feel for each other. I mean, how do you define in loveness? How do you define that? How do you subject in loveness to scientific investigation? <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. You can tell uh, the accidents of it, that is, the bits that you can see about in loveness, but you can't define what is it, the essence of someone. And David, David here in these words, is ecstatic. He is in raptures over the passionate plan of God for his life. Look at it with me. Three things. These are not the first three things I gave you. These are another set of three things. Just in case you're taking notes and you need help. The three things are, first of all, past grace. Past grace. You see this. Oh Lord God, what is, who am I? And what is my house that you've brought me this far? He's overwhelmed, you see, with a sense of the extraordinary grace that God has shown him. He is awestruck by this grace. That he should, that, that God should ever have noticed him. That God should ever have set his eyes on him. That God should ever, you know, picked him out among the crowd. Here, here is the crowd of humanity. And he says, God has seen me. He's noted me. He's put his eye on me. He's taken notice of me as one of the people out of humanity. Now, why have you done this? He's saying. I can't think of any reason why you should have done this. Why you should have thought of me. Why I should have entered into your mind at all. He says, I'm overwhelmed by this. He, he has been called. God has not only seen him, but God's called him out of his home and out of his family and away from his job. And God has given him a, a job not as a shepherd, but as the shepherd of Israel. I mean, a shepherd with apologies to anyone watching by webcast who happens to be one. Peace be unto you. There are not a lot of upwardly mobile opportunities for shepherds. You know, this is not the kind of thing that you parents are hoping that your kids will become. I mean, they may become it and you'll be proud of them. And if you were in Texas, you might want them to do that, but I believe in Texas they don't like sheep. So that's not a good place to go. But wherever it is that they like sheep in America, you might want them to go there. And stay there because they'll smell cheap. I mean, it's just one of these things. I mean, there was not a lot of future in being a shepherd. And yet God has come to this man and has taken him and elevated him and made him the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd of Israel. The king of Israel. 
This was something that God himself emphasized back in verse 8 of this chapter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. He recognizes, David recognizes, this is the Lord's initiative. It's the Lord's doing. The Lord has started this business. There is absolutely no natural human explanation of the fact that he was found out by Yahweh and chosen by Yahweh. He's overwhelmed by this. If you look at verses 18, twice in verse 19, again in verse 20, you'll find that he uses the awesome name for God, Lord God. Lord God, the name that describes God as above, greater than anything. He says, you are such a great God. Lord God, you have done this. It's all of God. God's initiative from first to last. There is no merit, no worth, no deserving, no earning, nothing. What God has done for us is utter graciousness. And that's true for those of us who are Christians. Sons we are by God's election who in Jesus Christ believe. By eternal destination, lasting life we now receive. Not of ours. Not our choice in that sense. Past grace. And secondly, he's rejoicing in future grace. Look at this. Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house, of a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. It's a great thing. It's not a small thing. He thinks of the years that he'd been in exile, struggling, and the Lord had preserved him from a thousand deaths. But that was only the beginning. He says, you have something for the future, this forever promise. And this forever promise that you've made is, he says, in this enigmatic phrase, instruction for mankind. Literary, literally, my diction, Mrs. Boyce, literally, the Torah of man. Walter Kaiser thinks it should be translated the charter for humanity. In other words, I think what David is saying here, at least this is my take on what's being said here, and obviously that's right, uh, and you can take up any contributions with the scholars that have them. Uh, uh, I think what David is saying here is that this is what mankind needs. Putting it at the simplest. This is God's way of doing for humanity what God had promised to Adam and Eve outside Eden, that God had promised to Abraham when he said in you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. When God had said to Israel that they were going to be a light to the nations, to all the nations, and they'd failed to be that. David is saying here, you know, this purpose that you have, Lord God, to make my descendants a son of God, and for them to reign in Jerusalem over your people Israel, is somehow or other going to be the prescription that humanity needs. It's going to be the very thing that humans need. This is the way the nations are going to be blessed. This is the way people, men and women, in the 21st century, in Philadelphia, are going to be blessed. This is for you, in other words. This is for 
you. This will affect you. It affects our world today. And God is going to bless through the descendant of David, who is, of course, our David, the Lord Jesus. So he reflects on past grace, and he reflects on future grace, and he reflects on sovereign grace. He says this, verses 7 and 8, What more can David say to you? I'm, I'm speechless. And this is David we're talking about here. You open, the, you open your Bible in the middle and you've got the book of Psalms. And a lot of those Psalms are written by David. This is not a man who's inarticulate. This is not a man who normally doesn't have something he can say. He can write poetry about uh, all kinds of subjects. And he can talk freely about all kinds of subjects. This, this is a man who is able to talk and express himself. But here he is before God and he says, actually, face with your grace, I have nothing to say. Nothing will do this justice. Nothing will do this justice. And he's struck by the fact that God knows him. You know your servant, O Lord God. And the word there is not just being used in the sense of, you know, I know most of your names. I just lack the courage to actually try it on you. <laughs> Guess I get it wrong. That's not the way he's using the word to know here. He's using the word to know in a more intimate, the way it's usually used, often used in the Bible, of, of something selective. God has known you. I mean, you, you, maybe you've been coming to this church for a long time. You know a lot of people in the church. You know them, generally. But there are some people who are your special friends. You know them in a different way. You've, in a sense, you've elected them. Because you can't be friends with everybody. That would just, you just don't have the emotional capacity to be friends with absolutely everybody. And what this saying is that God has chosen him. God has chosen him. And that choice of God is free, sovereign, and undeserved. Here is Hannah's theology that defines the whole book of Samuel. Hannah's theology, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. No other God makes poor and makes rich, lifts the needy to make them sit with princes. That was basic Hannah theology. David is echoing that theology here. You have singled out your servant. You know your servant. But do you see how he defines this grace of God? Look at what he says next. He says, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Experience it. He sees what God has done for him and he sees the promises that emanate from God and he says, all of these things emanate from the great heart of God, the deep, rich, great heart of God. Now this is a definition of what grace is, isn't it? You know there are some ecclesiastical bodies. I won't call them churches. though They call themselves churches, but there are some ecclesiastical bodies who believe that grace is not it is an element grace is a substance grace is a kind of transmittable germ or infection that is delivered to those 
who do certain things, who receive wine or bread or have water poured on them or have oil anoint them or whatever. In other words, that these actions, these actions work, to use the Latin phrase, ex opere operato. They, the actions cause the work by themselves. They, they convey something. They convey grace to people. Grace is not an element or a substance or a transmittable infection. Grace is a characteristic in the heart of God. The great heart of God. You see, that's what he says. According to your own heart. Grace is an attribute of God. You and I cannot transmit it by giving it out. It's not there for us to give out. It's the heart of God towards us. It is God setting His love upon us. It is God looking upon us kindly when we don't deserve kindness. Generously when we don't deserve generosity. God taking the initiative. Do you see what David's reaction to all of this is? His reaction to this is not only to feel his own insignificance and contrast himself with the greatness of God. He doesn't stop there. His reaction is not silence. His reaction is not even to wallow in his own self-pity and think, you know, I really am, really a miserable sinner and I really do not deserve any of this stuff and I really, really am full of shame because of the kind of person I am that God has been showing me all this kindness and goodness and generosity and so on. And, and some people go around as miserable sinners all the time. They're focusing still on themselves. David doesn't do that. David focuses on God. Therefore, he says, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. He's relishing the generosity of God, sovereign grace, or sin abounding grace, ransomed souls, the, the tidings swell, tis a deep that knows no sounding, who its breadth or length can tell. On its glories let my soul forever dwell. What my, from Christ my soul can sever. Bound by everlasting bands. Once in Him, in Him forever. Thus the eternal covenant stands. None can pluck me. None can pluck me from the Father's mighty hands. You see... I'm pausing here today. This is the end. Being captivated by the grace of God is not conducive to us ever becoming satisfied worshippers. You're never able to reflect upon the grace of God and leave church feeling satisfied by your worship. No matter how excellent the program is, no matter how heartily you sing, no matter how attentively you listen, you can never ever be confronted by the grace of God and walk away and think, I thanked Him enough. I praised Him enough. Because <laughs> you never can. 
There's always a dissatisfaction. Because you see his gratitude, his, his generosity towards you, and it stirs up gratitude in your heart. And secondly, it seems to me that you can't reflect on the grace of God towards you and take it seriously and be miserly about the grace you show to people who offend you. I did a wedding on Friday. I was saying to the couple in front of everybody else, uh, I said to them, you know, one of the keys in marriage, isn't it, is to show each other grace. If you're a Christian couple, to show each other grace. You will offend each other. You will offend each other. The heart of the relationship is being able to forgive even as you've been forgiven by God. Some of us need to translate that into the way we deal with people. The people who offend us. The people who hurt us. The people who slight our reputation. The people who put us down. The people who irritate us. The people who sin against us. It's to show them the grace that God has shown us. But here's the last thing I want to say. David said, I want to build a great temple for you, God. God says to David, good thought, but no. I want to do something for you that will bless the whole world, that will last forever. And to every heart, to every heart that today thinks, I could do this for God. I could work harder. I could try harder. I could be more obedient. I could praise Him more. I could serve Him more. I could sacrifice more. I could do this. I could do that. God says, no. But I want to do something for you. What does David do in response? He believes God. And I ask you to do that today. Believe God. Believe His Word. Believe His promise. Believe He's serious. And receive the free gift of Christ that He promised to David and that He promises to you. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit today, we might again embrace the Lord Jesus, take him as our own. This is the moment as we take bread and the moment and eat it, as we take the wine and drink it, that in that outward visible physical action, we might represent what we're doing in our hearts by faith as we let, lay hold of Jesus as our own Savior. And Lord, we pray this in his strong name. Amen.